Three months after the children of Israel left Egypt, they came to Mount Sinai. Moses was called up. The children of Israel were told to stay behind, not touch the mountain. God said, if you touch it, if they touch it, they're going to die. So Moses warned them sternly not to come near the mountain. And of course, the children of Israel were very happy to not come near the mountain. In fact, they said, look, Mo, you go up and talk to God. And just whatever he says, you tell us, but we don't want to go. And so he was sort of their mediator. He was to hear from God, come back and give them all of the laws and the will of God for the lives of the children of Israel. In the New Testament, Paul the Apostle said, through the law came the knowledge of sin. He said, I would not have known sin unless the law would have said, this is wrong, thou shalt not do this. And so he says that the law, as we read it here, the Ten Commandments and the rest, were to set parameters to show us how holy God is and how wretched man is, to see that gap. God gave the law, but God knew that man could never completely keep it. That's why, though he gives the law, he also establishes a sacrificial system to atone for the sins of the children of Israel because he knew that they would fail in keeping that law. No one has ever succeeded in keeping the law. Now somebody will say to you sometime, I keep the Ten Commandments. You could safely call that person a liar. Nobody has kept the Ten Commandments totally except Jesus Christ. He's completely fulfilled the law. Nobody has kept it. You say, well, I've not murdered. You could say, well, have you been, ever been angry at somebody? Well, yeah, but who hasn't? Well, Jesus said, if you're angry with your brother, you're a murderer. Oh, but I've never committed adultery. Have you ever lusted? Well, well then you're guilty. Because the breaking of the law begins in the heart. And the heart of man is desperately wicked. And Paul said, when I look through the law, here's a rabbi who poured over the documents of the law day after day. That was his ministry, actually, was to know it and to teach it to Israel. He said, I came into the conscious awareness that I was apart from God and that I needed something more. And he said, I saw that the law was for the inward man, not just the outward man, because I came to that law that says, you shall not covet. And there is a law that does not deal with the outward actions, but the inward attitudes. Coveting is all inward. You may have coveted this afternoon and nobody knows it. It's all inward. And Paul said, then I saw that the law was meant to govern the inward attitudes of the man, not just the outward actions. Now, we are not under the law. And as we mentioned to God just a minute ago in our prayer, we thank the Lord for that. We're not under a burden of the law. Peter said, this is something that neither we nor our fathers were ever able to bear. But just because we're not under the letter of the law, that's not to say that we don't live to please God. We do. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He didn't say, if you love me, you'll be absolutely flawless. But those of us who love the Lord God want to obey Him. We want to do what's pleasing to Him. We want to keep those commandments. In fact, one of the marks of a true Christian is obedience to that which the Lord commands us. But that's why Jesus said, if you love, you will keep the law. We can sort of boil all this down tonight into the funnel, and at the base is love. 
And if you think about it, it fits perfectly. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, will you have other gods before Him? Will you profane His name? No. Now, if you love your neighbor as yourself, will you steal from him? Will you murder him? I love you, brother. <laughs> of course not. It's mutually exclusive. Love fulfills the commandments. Jesus said that, and Paul repeated it. Now we come where we left off last week, really with the fourth commandment in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath, in Hebrew, Shabbat, to the Lord, or of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter, nor your manservant, nor your maidservant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed Shabbat, the Sabbath day, and he hallowed it. It was striking to me when I first discovered that God gave a commandment to rest. I like that. But it struck me that he had to give us a commandment to do it. Some of us need a commandment to rest. Some of us just take work to ourselves. We're just Work addicts, man. We're workaholics, and we just never slow down. And God told the children of Israel, some of them who might be greedy and tend to overwork to make a bigger profit, he said, now I finished all of my work in six days, and the seventh day I rested. It wasn't because God was tired. It's just because God was finished. And that six-in-one pattern followed as a model for the children of Israel. Do your work in six days, take a day off, and hang loose. That's really the Sabbath day. Hang loose. Hang out. Rest. God is not some fuddy-duddy pointing his finger from heaven, whipping us every time we do something wrong. We get that wrong image of God sometimes. God is a God of love who knows that we need, as well as we need to work, we also need to rest. Jesus told his disciples, it's really interesting, they came back from being sent out by Jesus. And they were all excited when they got back to see Jesus. And they started reporting to Jesus all that they had done in terms of miracles, all that they had seen. And Jesus didn't go, wow, ooh, hey man, you're really awesome. I can count on you. The first thing out of Jesus' mouth is, come aside by yourselves and rest a while. He let them take a break. He made sure that the work, even the work for the Lord, was adequately balanced with time alone, time to rest. I have a friend who owns an airplane, flies it quite a bit, almost daily. It's how he gets from different parts of the country. And I said, what is the secret to keeping this thing going long term? He said, simply maintenance, oil changes, fixing up the engine, rebuilding the engine, constant maintenance. I have to just keep this thing babied. This commandment is really the maintenance law. God knows that you will not operate at peak performance unless you take a day and hang out. Don't let anybody make you feel guilty for resting. Now, this is not to say that you ought to sleep until noon every day. 
because God wants you to rest. There's a time to rest. There's also a time to work. And what's really interesting is that Israel didn't work five days. They worked six days. In fact, in Israel today, Sunday is the first day of their work week. And they work all day long, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. But they go home a little bit early Friday. The guy usually buys flowers for his wife. She sets a beautiful table. They both dress up nicely. And the family doesn't go to the movies. They stay home at night and enjoy one another and each other's company. And the husband will extol his wife as the virtuous woman. She will read from the scriptures and it'll be a night that's a family night. It'll be a real rest for the family. Then the next day, they don't do anything. Not only is it forbidden, they just sleep in, they hang out, it's very relaxing. You would live longer. You'd feel better if you take an entire day and just hang loose. Sleep in, maybe sleep all day. Work hard six days, take one day and just put it on autopilot. Cruise, cruise-o-matic. Rest. Now the question that is often asked regarding this commandment is, is the Sabbath something that the Christian ought to follow? There's a couple people or there's camps on either side of the argument. There's some who say Christians, many of them violate the commandment of God and they worship on Sunday. There's one even denomination that used to say, some of them still do, not as much, that if you worship God on Sunday, you've taken the mark of the beast. And that Saturday is the only true day of worship. Because the Sabbath is still a commandment for God's people. Well, it's really not a commandment for Christians. It is a commandment for Israel, and God spelled it out very plainly. You, the children of Israel, for you and for your generations. It was a covenant made only singularly with the children of Israel. The Sabbath is the only purely ceremonial and non-moral law. The other nine commandments deal with moral absolutes. And they are spoken about over and over again in the Old Testament and the New Testament. They're even repeated in the New Testament. We still shouldn't murder. We still shouldn't commit adultery. Jesus expanded on it and showed the intent of the law. But all of these laws pervade even the New Testament. The Sabbath was the only one that was never expanded upon or commanded for Christians to continue to keep. We read in the New Testament that the early church worshipped the first day of the week because it was the resurrection day. Jesus rose from the dead. And because of that, for that reason, and you know what? It doesn't matter. To be honest with you, it's nothing to get hung up on. Now, some like to get hung up on it, and they'll box me in a corner, and some will even uh, come up and say, you're the pastor of that Calvary Chapel, aren't you? And they'll be very militant and say, you worship on Sunday, don't you? I say, sort of. What do you mean, sort of? I worship on Sunday and Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. Oh, and yes, Saturday. See, Paul said one man esteems one day of the week over all the rest. Another man esteems all the days to be exactly alike. And then he said this, let each one be persuaded in his own mind. In other words, there's a lot of latitude. So if a person's all hung up, Saturday, go for it. I'm not going to hassle you. But don't hassle me. You want to be Sunday? Great. You want to come Thursday night? You want to do Monday afternoon, 2 o'clock in the morning on Tuesday? It doesn't matter. It's not when, it's that you worship. 
But Sunday was the model that we see in the New Testament. By the time Jesus came on the scene, the Sabbath had been corrupted. And you're going to see a lot of this in the New Testament. We already have in Matthew how that the Pharisees, these keepers of the law, the people who tried to follow the Talmud more than the Old Testament scriptures themselves, always got hung up on the Sabbath day. In fact, they got really angry at Jesus because they thought he didn't keep it to the sufficiency that they thought it demanded. So they would always nail him on and point a finger at him. You're healing on the Sabbath day. You know, my question is, when did you ever heal? Never. They should have been astonished at the miracle, but they were hung up on when it was. By the time that Jesus came on the scene, the Sabbath day had so degenerated among the Jews that they had laden the Sabbath day with so many crazy rules and regulations. And they had debates. The Talmud, the Mishnah, the Talmud, which is a collection of the Mishnah, the Midrash, and the Gemara, these writings of the Jews for seven centuries, has the arguments of, of several Jewish fathers arguing what you can and can't do on the Sabbath. Here's an example of the Jewish writings. A typical passage from the scribal law said, it is forbidden by the Torah to carry a burden on the Sabbath. Now, if I told you that, it wouldn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what a burden is. Anything that burdens you, that's really hard, that bends your back, that's a burden. That wasn't enough for these scribes and these Pharisees. They had to debate exactly what a burden was. And so they came up with this definition. A burden is, quote, food equal in weight to a dried fig. Enough wine for mixing in a goblet. Enough milk for one swallow. Enough honey to put upon one wound. Enough oil to anoint a small member of the body. Enough water to moisten an eye salve. Enough paper to write a customs house notice. And enough ink to write two letters of the alphabet and a reed enough to make a pen. These guys would sit in the corner and argue if you could light a lamp on the Sabbath, lift a lamp, if um, a woman could wear a brooch in her hair on the Sabbath, if people who had false teeth could wear them on the Sabbath, if you were a parent, if you could lift up your little child on the Sabbath. They argued endlessly about this. You can understand how the Jesus came so unglued in Matthew 23 at these characters. Woe unto you hypocrites! keeping the letter, forgetting the heart of the law. Mercy, justice, compassion. It got worse. They said you couldn't write on the Sabbath. These guys were not happy with that. They had to define that further. And so they said, He who writes two letters of the alphabet with his right or left hand, whether of one kind or two kinds, if they are written with different inks or in different languages, he is guilty. Also, if he writes on two walls that form an angle or two tablets of his account book so that, they cannot be, or so that they can be read together, is guilty. Now, this is the weird thing. The whole purpose of the law of the Sabbath was to get them to cease from work. They had to work just to figure out what not to do. It became a burden to keep the Sabbath. Now, can you see why Jesus went into the synagogue and they said, how come you're healing on the Sabbath? He said, look, the Sabbath was made for man. Man was not made for the Sabbath. Chill out. Now, that's not in the text. <laughs> but these guys were just nuts. Now we get to the fifth commandment. 
Now the law breaks up. There's um, two parts of the law. The first four commandments and then the second six commandments. The first four deal with our relationship with God. The second six deal with our relationship with each other. And first of all, the family, the home is brought into focus. The mom and the dad. Your first relationship is with them. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord is giving you. What does that mean, that your days may be long? Now some people say, well, if you obey your parents, you're going to live a long time. The idea really was this, and you would, that's true, in those days especially, because if you did not honor your father and mother, you were killed. That's the idea here. It was capital punishment. If you were to speak out or to assault your mother and father. The, the, the penalty in ancient Israel was death by stoning. So it's like, hey, honor your mom and dad so that you live long, so that your life isn't cut short by the stoning penalty. That's the idea. What is interesting to me is that the same penalty for blasphemy was the penalty given to children who did not honor their father and mother. What does it mean to honor? The word in Hebrew is kabod, which means to add weight to the words of, to add weight to them. It means when they talk, when they act, when they discipline, your attitude toward the parents is to take what they say and what they do and add weight to it. To not just say, what do you know, fuddy-duddy? Don't talk to me about your generation. This is the new generation. Honoring mom and dad is tough for any kid, especially as that child reaches adolescence and then the teenage years. It's, there's that shifting that takes place. They want to be on their own. Parents need to recognize that too, to not um, weigh their children down, exasperate them, as Paul would say in the New Testament. But the idea is to add weight to what they say. I think that implies respect and appreciation. And I don't think it ends when you leave the home. i got to say, I grew up with a very nasty attitude toward my parents. I am glad, number one, that I didn't live in the Old Testament. I'd be dead. And I'm also glad that my dad never found a lot of the laws that were written in the Old Testament about disciplining children with the rod. Though even without reading it, he seemed to practice oftentimes those dictates. And let me know that he was in charge. But when a child leaves home, the attitude should never be, hey, I'm on my own, leave me alone. Jesus was our example. Even on the cross as he hung between heaven and earth, he had respect and honor and appreciation for his mother. One of the seven sayings from the cross of Jesus Christ, when John was standing next to his mother, is, Mother, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. And from that day on, the scripture says, John took Mary, the mother of Jesus, home to be cared for. He really showed the honoring of father and mother after he left home. Let's look at verse 13 now, the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. If you have an older version, the King James Version, it's actually an excellent version. It says, thou shalt not kill. The idea of the word is murder. You shall not murder. Murder has always been a problem with mankind. The first crime was murder. Cain killed Abel. It's been a problem with man ever since. Every year in our country, they say about 25,000 murders 
occur, about 70 per day. Those are just reported known murders. There are unknown murders that are uncovered later or sometimes never known at all. They're just missing persons. If you were to add to that statistic suicide, that's self-murder, abortion, the murder of the pre-born child, the statistics are staggering how guilty this nation is of blood. Our hands are filled with the blood of the innocents. Just in what we do to the unborn is enough for God to unleash massive judgment upon this nation. Were he to do it today, he would be fully justified. You shall not murder. Life is sacred. It's a gift from the Creator. We're made in the image of God. Now remember, murder begins inwardly. Who hasn't been guilty of anger? And a lot of times we justify our anger, don't we? Well, I'm not a murderer. I'm just mad at I could kill him. I'd never do it, but... You wouldn't do it. Why? Probably because you'd get caught and there'd be penalty. But you notice that people more and more are committing violent crime? It's because there's no deterrent to violent crime. We're very soft on crime. You know, I could so easily go on a tirade about this present administration and their view of crime, but then I think that I would be detracting from the study of the Word of God, so I'll leave it at that. And I will be the first to say that I am not without guilt. When I grew up, I had an incredible anger problem. I did not resolve conflict with my mom and dad. In fact, I told my mother on a couple occasions, Mom, I'm going to kill Dad. You mark my words. I hate him and I'll kill him. I remember coming home and getting so angry with my brother that I'd stick a knife in his arm, throw him through the front window. Of course, he didn't just take it lying down. He threw me through the window a few times. I put a hole in the door of one of our bedrooms with my foot trying to be Mr. Karate Champion. My parents left it there for months just as a reminder of what anger can do, how debilitating it is. When I came to Jesus Christ, I started taking my anger and using it in the wrong way. I'd come home and I'd share with my parents the gospel and they wouldn't receive it and so I'd get angry and try to be righteously angry. You're not saved and you're this, and I would just be little Junior John the Baptist turbocharged. <laughs> and they were just floored. And God spoke to my heart and said, They don't know me, you do. You're responsible to go to your parents and repent. What do you mean, be repent? I'm saved, man. They're not. They need to repent. No, you go and humble yourself before your unsaved parents and you tell them that you have been wrong in your approach. And out of love, you want them to be in heaven, but that you're sorry for your attitude. And I did. That was very difficult, but it was very necessary. And it was from that point on that God started melting our hearts and reconciling our hearts when I humbled myself. You shall not murder. Seventh commandment, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. 
God establishes the sanctity of life. Right after that, he establishes the sanctity of marriage. God created Adam. God created Eve. Not only so that they could procreate the earth, but that they would enjoy one another completely. God invented sex. Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. It was his invention. It was his idea. God invented sex. He wanted it to be absolutely fulfilling. He wanted it to be something that fuels and helps fuel a marriage, but it's not the be-all, end-all of any relationship, certainly. It's to complement that which is already there in terms of love and respect. It's something that is beautiful. Since God created it, it's beautiful. It's God-given. The sexual drive is God-given, but it also must be God-guided. If it's not God-guided, then it is abused. It is abused when it's taken outside of marriage. If it's done before marriage, the Bible calls that fornication. If it's done after marriage, it's called adultery. If it's done with members of the same sex, it's condemned as sin, and it's called sodomy. God established sex and the sex drive. But men have ruled God out and given way to their passions, and now sex oozes out of the pores of American society. You shall not commit adultery. I never have. But yet remember that Jesus said it all deals with the inward attitude, right? Whoever looks upon another woman and lusts in his heart has already committed adultery. I think every man who heard Jesus Christ that day was busted outright and went, The illustration I always like to give is the soil in our garden. It's beautiful in the garden. It's rich, luscious. It looks great around plants. But track it inside on the white carpet. It didn't look as beautiful. It's out of place. It's out of its intended element. Now, if you track enough dirt on the carpet, you might get used to it. Our society has a lot of mud on the rug. And now, it's hard to tell the difference from the garden and the carpet. It looks the same. And because people are living in the mud that they put on the carpet, they say, hey, this is normal. What are you doing? It's whatever you're into. It's just that they've been used to such impurity for so long, they don't know what a fulfilling relationship is. There was somebody that was on a talk show years ago. I really don't remember all the specifics, but it was somebody who was a Hollywood favorite. He was the star. And that talk shows are often known for just being, you know, mindless. And the talk show host asked him about his love life. How's your love life? He said, it's great. I'm married to my wife. And I love her. And then he said, this statement, he said, any dog can sleep around. But it takes somebody who's a real man to stay committed to one woman for a lifetime. That's fulfillment. And it stunned the talk show host, but the audience went crazy. They actually applauded it, probably because it was so rare. You shall not commit adultery. Eighth commandment, verse 15, you shall not steal. Stealing has been a problem, again, ever since the fall. In the ancient laws, and we'll come across some of them in the Old Testament, a watchtower was established when fields were put by certain people and they were demarcated with marker stones. A watchtower was built. And if you go to Israel today, out by Bethlehem, where they have the olive orchards and the wheat fields where Boaz and Ruth uh, had their encounter, you still see the ancient watchtowers. 
looming in the horizon throughout the hills because a person would stay in the watchtower just to make sure that people wouldn't rip off the other people's crops or that people wouldn't move the boundary stones. And they're still there today. You see stones with little white caps painted on them. And what thieves would do, even if they own property, is they'd get out in the middle of the night about 2 in the morning, they'd tiptoe out to the field. And they'd take the boundary stone that is theirs, adjacent to their neighbor's property, and move it just, just a little bit. And the other one, just a little bit. And sometimes they would do this gradually. And by moving the stone, they would be stealing more property. And so you read about this law as we come up in the next several chapters. You shall not move a boundary stone that is your neighbor. That's stealing. It was a problem ever since the fall. You can steal in a number of ways. If we were to apply this to our life, you can steal from not only going into a store and ripping something off or stealing outright. You could steal from, say, your employer. Calling in sick when you're not sick taking things home from the office that don't belong to you, belong to the company. Ah, oh, they're not going to miss this. It's just a box of pens. It's just a little bit of paper. It's making long-distance phone calls for personal use when you've never been allotted that privilege by the company. That's all stealing. Employers can steal from their employees by not paying them, either on time or paying them what they're worth. Now, let's also talk about paying bills. Christians ought to pay bills, I believe, on time. If not, they ought to find people that they owe it to and say, I'm late on my bills, I want to work it out. If you want to charge extra interest, go ahead. But being responsible for their bills. I've had several friends who have been managers of Christian radio stations. And I have heard so long that the people they have trouble collecting from the most is Christian ministries who buy radio time. And then it puts the, the station in a bind. So, you know, it's hard to collect from these guys. These are big international ministries. They're not paying their bills. And, you know, you try to say, hey, we, we need the money to pay the rent and the electricity on the station. And, uh, but a lot of them won't pay up on time. I think that's a reproach to Christ. You've got to pay up. Uh, we have, as a church, an excellent reputation in this community for paying our bills when the bills come in. Whatever kind of bill it is, electrical, gas, whatever, it's, it's there on time. And it ought to be that clean. And just to make it clean, we get an audit done every year. Just so that the auditor can say, this is where you're good, this is where you're lacking, to keep it squeaky clean. Just so it won't be a reproach to the world. You can also steal from the government by refusing to pay taxes, not including everything on your income tax form. Well, I won't put that in. You can also steal from God. Remember the book of Malachi? God says, will a man rob God, yet you have robbed me, says the Lord. And the children of Israel replied, how have we robbed you? God said, in tithes and offerings. You've withheld that which I commanded, the 10%. In the Old Testament, it was 10%. And God says, you've robbed me. Well, let's look at the next commandment, verse 16. The ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This is based on the character of God. God loves truth. God hates falsehood. God is a God of truth. We're commanded to worship the Lord in spirit and truth. And we're to be truthful with each other and not bear false witness. The idea here is slander. Making up a report or exaggerating a report against somebody that would lower his reputation. When you don't know all the facts, 
but by your testimony, your slanderous testimony, you degrade or demote the reputation of the person through slander. And there's a lot of other ramifications, of course. Gossip, exaggeration, flattery, when you don't really mean it, excuses, could all be forms of bearing false witness. Verse 17 is the Tenth Commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet. Now notice this is an internal thing. This does not govern, at first, an external action. At first it's an internal response. To covet is something nobody sees. Now, it will be translated later on into something like stealing or murder or whatever else. But here is the internal commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox or donkey, or anything that is your neighbor. Now, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. If you took a Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, which is the Greek translation, and were to turn to this passage in Greek, the word covet is epithumeo, from the word thumas, which means to burn, <clears throat> to kindle a flame, or to be impassioned. It's the same word Jesus used in the New Testament. Whoever looks upon another woman to epithumeo, to lust after her in his heart, has committed adultery. You say, well, what does lust have to do with coveting? Simply this, it's that passionate desire to obtain something you don't have. It's stretching yourself out to obtain it. Coveting that which is your neighbor's. Now, let's face it. Covetousness is big business in this country. Especially during times like the Super Bowl. The commercials, oh, Chip would have the exact um, figures on this, but just the, the millions of dollars per minute that are spent by companies to advertise their product. But it's a $14 billion a year business advertising. There are people who spend 8, 12, 14 hours a day trying to make you dissatisfied. They're thinking of all sorts of ways to portray their product to make you feel like, I'm just not a real person till I have that item in that commercial, till I have that toothpaste, until I wear those jeans or drive that car. I'm really an oddball. I'm really left out. Let's I keep up with everybody else. There's people who work hard at getting you to covet. But whenever we covet, stretch ourselves out to obtain, it shows that we're dissatisfied with God's provision. Think about that, Christian. It means that you say, God, it's not fair. I ought to have something better. I deserve better than this. I'm not satisfied with what you have allotted me with. That person has more than I do. They shouldn't have. I should have what they have. So it shows you that you're discontent with God's provision. It also shows you that you disregard your fellow man. There's nothing wrong with wanting an ox or wanting a wife or wanting a house. But there's something wrong when you want your neighbor's wife and your neighbor's ox, and your neighbor's wife. You start seeing what that person has and what you don't have, and your attitude changes toward that other person. You don't see that person the same. It is tainted by possessions or lack of them. And it will also be something that, if unchecked and unstopped, will lead to other forms of sin. 
like as we said, stealing and so forth. Verse 18, now all the people, the Ten Commandments now are finished. The broad painting of the commandments are done. All the, pain, all the people witnessed, notice the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when all the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. You see, the law was not a parade. This is something that caused them to really shake. It wasn't like, all right, man, let's go see the giving of the law at Sinai. They were shaking in their boots. The revelation of God showed the holiness of God, the sinfulness of men, and caused them to quake. They stood afar off, and they said to Moses, you speak with us, and we'll hear you. But don't let God speak with us, lest we die. Can you imagine today saying, I don't want to hear from God? Today we want to hear from God, right? We're open to the voice of God. What would the Holy Spirit be speaking to my heart right now? But in Old Testament times, the revelation of God brought the condemnation of God. I don't want to hear from God. To hear from God was not good news. To the children of Israel, no news is good news. You go, if you survive Moses, great, come and tell us what he said. The idea was this. Moses was a mediator between God and the people. God spoke to Moses. Moses was to speak to the people. Actually, Moses didn't want the job, so Aaron came alongside. Whenever you are afraid of a person, and you think that person is unapproachable, you will often seek out a person that you know that knows the person you want to approach a lot better than you do. That person becomes the mediator. Hey, I don't know that person. Would you talk to that person for me? I feel too intimidated. That person's so unapproachable. You become the mediator. I used to do that when it came to my dad. I'd go, Mom, would you ask Dad? She'd say, you ask him. No, 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 I know. Listen, if you approach him, and I'd try to say, if you butter him up, and she wouldn't have any part of that, but I'd try real hard to get a mediator between my father and myself during certain times. Now, in the New Testament, we have a mediator between God and man. Paul wrote to Timothy, the man Christ Jesus. You do not need any other mediator between you and God. I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. In certain regards, I thank God for the heritage because I was taught that Jesus was God. I was taught about the vicarious atonement, the bodily resurrection. The core of Christian doctrine was given to me. And I thank my parents for the core. But the Catholic Church has gone wrong in thinking the way a mediator should act, and they will often rationalize this thought when it comes to Mary. They'll say, now, what right do you have to go directly to Jesus? And so we pray to Mary, they say, because Mary's the mother of Jesus. And mothers can always speak to their sons and can persuade their sons when your presence wouldn't do it. So you pray to Mary or a saint, and they'll talk to Jesus, who will talk to the Father, and that's the rationale. That couldn't be further from the truth in the New Testament. There is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus bridged the gap. Jesus on the cross took a hold of your hand, took a hold of the Father's hand, and brought you together. You don't need anybody else. Jesus is your approach. So in the New Testament time, our time, you don't need a Moses. You've got Jesus. And don't let anybody stand between you and God. You have a direct connection through Jesus Christ. 
Don't let anybody tell you, well, hey, you come and counsel with me, and I'll tell you what God says personally. I'll be your personal you know, mentor. You, you can't go out and do anything unless you ask me, and I'll ask God for you. This is called the shepherding movement. It was very popular about 15 years ago in this country. Bob Mumford, Derek Prince, and a few others propagated this around the country and just destroyed many people. Some of them have repented since, thank God. The idea is that we'll be your personal shepherd. We'll be your Moses. We'll talk to God for you and discern the will of God. You're too immature to do it on your own. No, sorry. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me to green pastures. He leads me to still waters. Not you. I'm not going to follow a man when I can follow God. Unless that man is pursuing God and I can follow him as he follows the Lord. But that should be anybody's goal is to lead that person directly to God anyway. So they said, you speak lest we die. Verse 20, Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you. That his, notice this, God has come to test you that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. The idea of this dramatic display on Mount Sinai was to show the people two things. God is holy, man is not. And it was a test. God was saying, let's see if my people really see this gap between themselves and myself. That I am holy, sovereign, perfect, and they are imperfect. And they have to approach me, not really on the basis of this law, but on the basis of the sacrifices that will be instituted that come also from this law. So the people stood afar off, and Moses drew near the thick cloud where God was. The Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, You have seen that I talked with you from heaven. You shall not make anything to be with me, gods of silver or gods of gold. You shall not make for yourselves. He didn't want anything to remind them of God because God is a spirit. God transcends any image that somebody would concoct. This is fascinating. An altar of earth you shall make for me and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone for if you use your tool upon it, you have profaned it. It's fascinating that God did not want ornate altars built for him. If you're going to build an altar, just make it a dirt one. This is God talking. Just dirt. It's good enough. If you use stones, just use regular old rocks. Carved by nature. Carved by the providence of God. But don't cut it out and make it shaped and really so that people, I think, would ooh and ah over what you've done. God does not want anything in worship to distract from him. God's very simple. I remember when we first bought this building, I thought of this verse. I looked at this tin trap at that time. No heating, no air conditioning. Just underneath this thin layer of so-called carpet, is asphalt. It's not even cement. Just we glued it down on top of asphalt. It serves a purpose. You replace the carpet every now and then so you don't attract dirt and so you can have weddings in it. The first few weddings nobody wanted to do because it was asphalt and the dresses got really dirty. 
But I've been to Europe and I've seen the massive, and they're beautiful, the cathedrals, the things that, uh, that are in, in France and in Belgium. I've been into them and it's just, they're magnificent. But I have to say, when I go into an ornate, awesome building, it doesn't remind me of God. It shows me the glory and the majesty of man and his ability to make something. What tremendous architecture. So God just said, keep it simple. Let it serve its purpose. Not hewn stone. I don't want something really ornate. Now I think that today God would have every man or woman of God direct as much attention as possible to him. And I think that even in the way the gospel is presented, it ought to be done simply. This is a personal opinion, but I dislike personal antics, either of preachers or musicians, that would draw my attention away from God and His majesty and onto them. Or for that matter, in a worship service, for anybody to do something out of the ordinary that would cause my eyes to focus on them rather than God, I think really takes away from God. I think it's a tragedy. When a person, a person needs to be drawn to the Lord and to the Word of God, and I think God is honored in that. Now keep something in mind. The law is given. As soon as the law is given, an altar is commanded to be built. Now there's a story right there. Here's the law. This is what you shall do. But here's an altar, because you're going to blow it. And he gives them a sacrificial system a little bit later on and a tabernacle to have these burnt offerings and sin offerings continually. So God, in His justice, gives the law. God, in His grace, gives an altar. Because He knows that these people will not be able to keep it. Now, we have the same thing in the New Testament. Listen to what John said in his epistle. My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. How many of you have never sinned? So he goes on. And if anyone sins, whew, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus said, be perfect because your Father in heaven is perfect. Uh, okay, uh, I blew that one. What's plan B? The atonement. You have an advocate with the Father. Have you fa fallen from God or failed God or anything? You have an altar by God's grace. You can come anytime. That doesn't mean that you can rep repetitively sin knowingly and go on and just keep doing what you want. That just shows that you are not a Christian. It's a false profession. But we do fall. We do sin. We do struggle with this sinful nature. And you come to the cross. You come to that altar of Jesus Christ, and your sins are wiped away. You don't have to go through a pastor. You don't have to go through a priest. You don't have to go through a saint. You go directly to God through Jesus Christ. The altar is in Him. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So verse 26, Nor shall you go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. Very simple and a very logical commandment. So what do you do with these commandments? We've been given the Ten Commandments. You, first of all, use them as a compass See where you're going in life. You look at these things. You look at your attitudes in regard to these commandments. Use them as a compass to give you bearing. You use them also as a thermometer to gauge your love for God. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Do you have a problem with some of these commandments in your own life? These principles? It could be that that 
is a gauge of your love. If you love him, you'll keep his commandments. Jesus, uh, Jude said, keep yourselves in the love of God. At a place where God can show you his love, where God can use you. So it's just something to check. Thirdly, use it as a mirror to show you yourself. That's what Paul said it was. The law was given as a mirror. James said it's, it's when you look into it, it reveals who you are. The mirror is not the soap. The mirror reveals who you are. When you go to the bathroom, you look in the mirror in the morning, you go, ugh. Okay, <clears throat> I need a shower, I need makeup, or whatever. Then i got to do something. The mirror has revealed this to me. But you don't take the mirror off the wall and start scrubbing with it. The mirror is powerless to cleanse. Its power is to reveal. The law is powerless to cleanse, but it will reveal your heart. And then you get the soap out. And the only thing that has the power to cleanse is the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's the fourth thing that the law should be used in your life to do, to drive you to Jesus Christ. Galatians 3, the law was a prototokos, schoolmaster, tutor, a teacher to lead you to Christ. It's led you to Christ. Its power over you has ended. You love now God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor is yourself. And Jesus said on this, hang all the law and the prophets. Now we get to chapter 21. Now the Bible gets really interesting. And it's right about here that a lot of people reading through the Bible just give up. Because it starts getting a little bit out of the territory of familiarity. Oh, they like the stories of Genesis and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and even Moses. I mean, that God's awesome. And even Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments. Hey, I can hang with that. But you get to some of these social legislations. What is called in the 24th chapter of this book, the Book of the Covenant. These are laws that govern everyday life. Now look at it this way. The Ten Commandments are the principles that God gives in our relationship to God and our relationship to man. They're simple, they're comprehensive, but human life is not simple. It's very complex. There's all sorts of things that make human life very complex. And so now the law, the Ten Commandments, are sort of broken up into individual arenas, little cameos, servants, personal property, how the death penalty and thou shalt not murder and how to exact the death penalty, capital punishment, and just how to apply these broad principles now to daily life. You ought to know that the Ten Commandments and the next few chapters, which are the comprehensive laws of the land of Israel, are very close in similarity to what is called the Code of Hammurabi. You may read that in a footnote in your Bible or in your Bible dictionary or in some literature. The Code of Hammurabi. Now, Hammurabi lived about 1900 years B.C., is one of the most important figures in history, period. In 1900, 1903, I forget exactly which, a large eight-foot black stone of diorite was found as a monument to Hammurabi. Uncovered on this stone were all sorts of laws that bear incredible resemblance to the laws that we read about in Exodus. Probably because they lived in close proximity to each other. And uh, some suppose that this is one of the kings mentioned in the book of Genesis. We don't exactly know, but there is a pattern. And uh, there's many points of agreement. Verse 1. Now these are the judgments which you shall set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant... Now, some of these laws are going to seem odd to us. 
because they don't apply to us. They're very cultural. The children of Israel were a bunch of slaves that were delivered out of Egypt. This had a lot to do with them because now they need to learn how to treat those who are slaves. We'll discuss that in just a minute. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years. In the seventh, he shall go free and pay nothing. Now, I just want to draw your attention to this. There's a six and one pattern. You see it here. You'll see it many times. Six days you work. Seventh day you hang out. Six years you'll plant your seed. The seventh year you let the ground lie fallow. Six years if a slave needs to be sold into slavery to pay his debts, he'll work for you. Seventh year, scot-free. Six and one. Six and one pattern throughout the scriptures. God meant business with this. The Sabbath was to be kept in terms of days of the week, in terms of the workforce, slaves, in terms of the very land itself because it was sacred. God owned it and it was on loan. God was so insistent upon this that the children of Israel, when they disobeyed God, had to make up time. This is what I mean. For 490 years, they failed to keep the sabbatic year. That is, plant, sow, reap. Six years, the seventh year you hang out and let the land lie fallow and don't do anything. They failed to do that. They wanted to work the land hard. They wanted to get as much as they could out of it. So they, for 490 years, disobeyed God. How many Sabbath years is 490 years? Seventy. Because they disobeyed God for 70 Sabbath years, or 490 years, God sent them into the Babylonian captivity for how many years? Seventy years. And God even said, it's because you failed to keep my Sabbath of the land. That was one of the reasons among many that they were judged. So God says, you owe my land 70 years of rest. I'm going to make sure that the land gets it. You're out of here. And in 70 years you'll return. And they did. Daniel was reading Jeremiah 25 and he said, 70 years is almost up. It's time to go back to Israel. And God brought him back. Now a lot of people see a, a, a further corollary in this. They see that some believe in a that we have been under bondage of Satan, that uh, 4,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago, uh, Adam came, oh, 4,000 B.C., Adam came on the scene, that we've been in bondage to Satan 6,000 years, and we're about at the approach of a new millennium, and that the new millennium will be when the rapture of the church comes, the uh, seven-year tribulation, and the judgment upon the earth, and then the thousand-year period, the millennial period the Bible talks about, where we reign and rule with Christ for a thousand years upon the earth, will be the seventh. And they even draw out the scripture that one day is as a thousand years with the Lord, the thousand years is one day. We've been in bondage for six thousand years. That time is about up, and soon the end will come, will be delivered, and that seventh year will be the thousand-year reign with Christ. Now there's, there is an interesting corollary there. When it comes to dating that, it's a whole interesting um, exercise in itself. We won't attempt to do that. We'll move on. Soon we have five minutes. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. Here's a slave. If slave is poor and he had to make the money, then he'll work for you. That's the idea behind this kind of slavery. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters because that's... You know, that's part of his workforce. can't just take them with you. And he shall go out by himself. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, 
my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then the master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door and to the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. And if a man sells his daughter to be a maidservant, she shall not go out as the men servants do. The slave would work six years, but there was a limit. If you were so poor, and here's the idea behind slavery. Slavery was done, first of all, because you had to. You were so poor, you needed to pay off a debt. So you said, look, I'll be your servant. But the seventh year, you were allowed to go free. The second way you become a slave is to become a bond servant. That's not where you have to out of poverty, but it's because you want to out of love. And you say, you know, uh, I have a lot better here as a slave than I had ever being out there on my own. I never could make it on my own. I love my wife and my master. He's awesome. I just want to be his servant forever. He was to go before the judges of the city. They would take an awl, an implement, you know, and they would put a hole through his ear. That shouldn't stun you. Girls do it all the time. And even the slave would wear an earring to show that he belonged to his master. And all went through his ear, and it was a willing slavery. Now, there's a corollary in how we come to Christ, right? We come to Christ out of poverty. We're poor in spirit. We're broken. We go, oh, I, need, I need salvation. Man, I'm hurting for certain. And we follow him because we come to that place where we see our utter sinfulness, true repentance. But the relationship God wants, the relationship of enjoyment that you have with your Lord is when you serve him because you want to. You love him. It's not like, oh, I have to. I want to. The Lord is so awesome to follow. I willingly become his servant. I willingly become his slave. I want to serve him forever. Of course, there's a great type of Jesus Christ in this. He came to this earth. He became a man. He became a servant, Philippians 2 tells us. He poured himself out. He could have not gone to the cross. He could have gone to heaven without the gate of the cross. But he wouldn't leave without his bride, the church, that he loved so deeply. And he willingly gave himself for our sins as a servant. Listen to what Psalm 40, verse 7 says. It speaks messianically of Jesus Christ. It's quoted in the book of Hebrews. Psalm 40, verse 7. Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ear you have opened. Speaking of the willingness of the servant. My ear you have opened. Now, Jesus Christ became a servant willingly. And even as the servant in the Old Testament had a hole in his ear, he bore physical marks of his willingness to serve. Jesus bears physical marks of his willingness to be our Savior upon his body. Even to this day, when you see Jesus in heaven, you will see a lamb as though it had been slain, Revelation tells us. He will probably forever bear the marks in glory of what it took to buy you to himself. And he did it willingly. Remember in heaven, John said, I was caught up and I looked around the throne and there's all these living creatures and somebody says, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he looked back and he didn't see a lion, he saw a lamb. As though it had been slain. Still bearing the marks of being beaten and crucified. Now we've run out of time and I hope to get through this. Um, 
If you give me five more minutes, though, we can make it a little bit further. Verse 8. See, I ask your permission and even wait for an answer. <laughs> if she does not please her master who has betrothed her to himself, and he shall let her be redeemed, and he shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has dealt deceitfully with her, and if he has betrothed her to his son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. If he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, and her marriage rights. If he does not do these things for her, then she shall go out free without paying money. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. Now God on one hand says don't murder. On the other hand he says execute those who premeditatively murder. I hear that quoted so often. The Bible says you shall not kill. Therefore capital punishment is something God would never... No, that's not true. In the same almost breath that God instituted you shall not murder, He enabled the state, the government, to execute for the sake of righteousness and purging of the land, as we read about in Leviticus, because you've defiled the land. The only way to purge it was the death penalty. He commanded it. In fact, this is something that predates the law. In Genesis chapter 9, God said to Noah, If you shed man's blood, your blood shall be shed. If somebody premeditatively murders, you execute capital punishment. That's the, at the very institution of society itself. Um, in ancient Israel, there were no prisons. They really didn't have the prison problem we have. They had, the only thing they had was six cities of refuge that were strategically placed throughout Israel. And if, if you got into some skirmish and you killed somebody, since there was the avenger of blood, somebody would track you down to kill you and revenge for that, you'd flee to a city of uh, refuge. Nobody could get you till you got a fair trial. And if you were a murderer, they'd kill you premeditatively. If there were other circumstances, you'd get a fair trial and you'd pay a, a fee or whatever it would take. But uh, that was the only thing that was um, allowed. Capital punishment was enacted for murder, adultery. Wow! Can you imagine the bodies piled if that was enacted today? Incest, homosexuality, witchcraft, consulting any medium, sorcerer. There was death by stoning, death by strangulation death by burning, and the tractates of the Mishnah. I just got a copy of the Talmud and I've been going through it. There's different tractates on... They specify, the Sanhedrin specified exactly how the death penalty was uh, to be carried out. And we don't have time tonight. And, and if I were to read the tractates of the Sanhedrin, it might just gross you out in how specific they were about the death penalty being carried out. Uh, so uh, we'll refrain for another time. And uh, we'll continue next week with verse 13. And we'll finish it up. Let's pray. Lord, tonight we have had a glimpse of the righteous character that you possess. You are holy, you are separate from sinners. And yet you invite us to come near. As Paul wrote, we who were once afar off have been made nigh by the blood of Jesus Christ.
We don't have to go through a human mediator anymore. We can come directly to you and find cleansing all the times we have violated your commandments by the blood of your Son. Oh, how grateful we are, Lord. Help us, Lord, to sift from these things the general principles that still form the foundation of jurisprudence and law for our society and those things that are, on the other hand, fulfilled in Christ. For we're not bound by the law, but by the law of love, to love one another deeply, to care for one another, and to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Help us to walk away from that, from this study tonight with that in mind. To love you. To love one another. For Jesus said all men will know we're your disciples that we love one another. And Lord, show us practically what that means to serve one another, to take time to listen, to take time to minister to others financially with our time, with our words. In grace, in Jesus' name. 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 In grace in Jesus' name.